0: In this sanctuary, what he ministers is the very same thing. It is his life. That's why the doctrine of the Trinity destroys that. It says you have a different minister in this temple. You might have Christ as the high priest in heaven, okay, but in this temple, there's someone else. That destroys that truth. Christ can only be the high priest. He's the only one who earned that writes, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour, and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The subject of our discussion this morning is the order of Melchizedek. And uh, in looking at the order of Melchizedek, as soon as I mention the name Melchizedek, all kinds of ideas come to mind. There's a lot of mystery that surrounds this individual, this uh, person, this uh, being that is referred to briefly in the scriptures. And uh, because of the mystery that surrounds this character, it has led to all kinds of strange and even bizarre ideas and beliefs that exist about him as to who he was and uh, what that means for us. The importance of looking at this, I want to focus our attention here, is the reason it's so interesting is that this person is linked to the priesthood of Christ. And that's why it makes it important. And it's interesting to note that misunderstandings about Melchizedek can actually lead to misunderstandings about Christ and particularly his priesthood. So this this is the angle we want to explore this a little bit from now. Some of these ideas that exist about Melchizedek, uh, for example, the Mormons believe that the Melchizedek priesthood is a long line of priests with Joseph Smith being a Melchizedek priest in that line. It started with Adam and was passed down from one person to person all the way down, and now it's restored in the last days through Joseph Smith, and of course his uh, successors are in that same category. Uh, That's an interesting uh, detail we're going to see about that. But of course that's wrong. Why is that? The order of Melchizedek has only one priest in it, not multiple priests. Other people believe that Melchizedek must have been a supernatural being of some sort because his description seems to be supernatural, that he wasn't human. Some people believe it's actually Christ. It uh, could not be Christ because Melchizedek was actually a type or a symbol to point forward to Christ. The type cannot be the same thing as the anti-type or the fulfillment of the type. The fulfillment's always greater. Some people, and this is perhaps a little bit more common, some people actually believe Melchizedek was the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've heard that one. And they say, well, the Holy Spirit came down and he was there. There are a number of assumptions there in that the Spirit must be different to the Father and the Son and that the Spirit somehow took on humanity without a shred of evidence to support that. And it throws all kinds of problems into the mechanics of the plan of salvation. Uh, Melchizedek was actually a man, as we shall see, and he happens to be the very first priest that's mentioned in the Bible. It's mentioned in Genesis 14, verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. This is the very first mention of a priest in the scriptures. The first time the word occurs, and the man here, Melchizedek, is the one mentioned. Abraham meets him, of course, on the way back after the slaughter, and uh, they have this meeting, and the whole account there in Genesis 14, it's only a few verses, it's quite brief. It doesn't tell us much about Melchizedek, but uh, it does tell us some things that we can learn. Now, if if we were to ask the question, Melchizedek is the first priest that is mentioned. Who is the next priest? Does anyone know? Aaron. Okay, Aaron usually is the most common answer. But uh, it's not entirely right. I want you to think a bit more. It's actually, yeah, some people are saying that's true. It's Jethro, who was the father-in-law to to Moses. And then, of course, uh, comes Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. Uh, It's interesting to look at the different similarities and differences between the different orders of priesthood. There is a, a distracting device there. I don't know if that's a phone or a cooker that's going off, if that needs to be checked, just so you know. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, then that's that's over. Back here. All right. (laughs) In uh, Hebrews, we have a little bit more of a description of Melchizedek. And this is where some of the different ideas begin to arise because of these verses here. Hebrews seven one to four. For this Melchizedek King of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So far so good. Then we get to verse three. "...without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth tenth of the spoils." And this description in verse 3 is what gives rise to some of these strange ideas, where people conclude, well, he must have been a supernatural being of some sort. What Paul is uh, recording here, and the meaning, is not that he was a supernatural being... Because uh, he actually says, consider in verse 4, how great this man was. Paul understood him to be a man. But how can he have a man without a father, without a mother, and without an end of days? Paul is commenting on the fact that we don't have a record of his lineage or the end of his priesthood. And in that, it serves as a very good illustration for the priesthood of Christ. Let me read it to you from another verse, uh, from another translation, the same verse. It helps bring that meaning out a little bit more. Here it is, Hebrews 7:3. This is from the Syriac or the Peshitta. And it says, Of whom neither his father nor his mother are written in the genealogies, nor the commencement of his days, nor the end of his life, but after the likeness of the Son of God. His priesthood remaineth forever. We don't have any record of the cessation of the priest the, uh, of the Melchizedek priesthood. And this is why Paul uses that. Now, the link between the priesthood of Christ and the Melchizedek priesthood is brought out in the very first time in the book of Psalms by David. And uh, it's a familiar Psalm, Psalm 110. I wanna read verse one and verse four to focus our attention on this point and this link. And this is where it becomes of importance to us. Verse 1 says, the Psalm of David, The Lord said unto me, uh, unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And verse 4, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is speaking to who? The Father, the Lord there is, uh, is Jehovah or Yahweh, is speaking to the Son. And this is what he tells him, these two points I want us to keep in mind. Sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And linked with that is this oath that is given to him, God swears and he says you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The two are linked. I want us to keep that in mind, the sitting down and the fulfillment of this oath or this promise that is made. Now the order of Melchizedek, I want to explain something briefly here as well because many times this is misunderstood. When it says you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek, it means a priest like the order of Melchizedek. After here does not necessarily, it doesn't mean after as in uh, afterwards. It means like or in like manner. There is a likeness between Christ's priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood. In other words, Christ is not a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And Christ is not a priest from the order of Melchizedek. Many times this is misunderstood. We understand the Melchizedek priesthood to be some kind of an order or a category or a class of priests and Christ is a priest in that order. That's not the case. The priesthood of Christ is superior and better than the Melchizedek priesthood. It is like it in some things and unlike it in others as we shall see. And the some things in which it is like or similar is what Paul records in particular there in Hebrews chapter 7. I just want to mention that point because it helps alleviate some confusions that might arise. You see, brothers and sisters, misunderstanding the priesthood of Christ gives rise to further misunderstandings of other truths that are dependent on that. That's why we're told that the ministration of Christ in the sanctuary is a vital component. It's actually the foundation of our Faith, we talk about the sanctuary doctrine a lot, the sanctuary truth. It centers in the person who is actually officiating in that sanctuary, that's the priesthood of Christ. When we talk about type and anti-type in the scriptures, we find that, uh, and the word type simply means uh, a symbol or it's pointing forward to a fulfillment. That's what a type is. the type and the antitype are not the same. They're actually never the same. Uh, the antitype is always greater than the type. In other words, the fulfillment is always greater than what the type was or what is going to be fulfilled. The type always precedes the antitype. Well, that makes sense, right? It has to come first. And of course, when the fulfillment comes, it replaces the type. It fills it up, and now that is what we look to and what we understand. Important details that will help us appreciate the ministry of Christ and what it means that he is our high priest. This oath that uh, God gave David in Psalm 110, when was this oath fulfilled? Well, it depends who you ask, really, because there are a variety of ideas that exist as to when this oath was fulfilled. For example, this is a little bit of a timeline here, just so we can uh, get a bit of a visual. Uh, Melchizedek in, in the stream of time when he met Abraham is right about there. And then of course, uh, the beginning of the Aaronic priesthood was when God gave the, uh, to Moses this instruction. And David was living sometime, approximately a thousand or so years before the cross when he records this psalm in which he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this oath that was given to David, was it referring to something that happened in the past? Was it referring to something that was happening in heaven at that time? Or was it referring to something that would happen in the future? We want to see what the Bible says. I could tell you the answer straight off, but that would not prove anything. What does the Bible say? And I want to go in in a little bit of detail here, just so we can be sure that we are right, because You know, I'm sure you have as well. I've heard many ideas. Maybe if we go around in this room, we'd have many different answers. What is this talking about, and how can we know for sure? I'll ask you a question as far as the first point. Was David recording something that God revealed to him that had happened in the past? Well, if you look at the type and the antitype, in other words, could the Could the priesthood of Christ be like the Melchizedek priesthood before Melchizedek even existed? Absolutely impossible. In Hebrews chapter 7, we're told the following, verse 28. For the law maketh men high priests, which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was since or after the law, maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. What the apostle here is telling us is simply this. The word of the oath he's referring to here is what David said in Psalms. He says, the word of the oath was given after the, the law. In other words, before David, nothing was ever revealed or known as far as Christ's priesthood or what it was about or even linked with Melchizedek. The very first time that God ever revealed it to humanity was through David. And that, the timing of that was well after the establishment of the law, which has to do with the Levitical priesthood a very important point that is being made here. In other words, God is revealing something to David about a future event that does not, does not precede the Levitical priesthood. It came, or it, the oath was given after the Levitical priesthood was established, hundreds of years after that. And it links, it with, it links Christ's priesthood with Melchizedek. Are you looking to take your Bible study to the next level? Do you want to learn how to apply the Word of God in your daily life and share it more effectively with others? My Bible Academy is your online Bible school, offering a free, comprehensive, and dynamic program designed to deepen your understanding and engagement with the Bible. Take the next step in your spiritual growth and enroll to start a course at My Bible Academy today. The courses are designed to equip you with the tools and knowledge you need to share your faith with others. Visit nadamansur.com to enroll and start your learning journey today. That's nadamansur.com. See you there. And so the oath cannot precede the type, the fulfillment that is. The fulfillment of the oath cannot precede the type. So if you look at our diagram, we can safely exclude the past as being a fulfillment of the Oath. Now what about the present was David recording something of what was taking in place in heaven at that time Some people believe that and uh, the reason for it is actually quite uh, reasonable because the way David records the the oath it doesn't say you will be a priest forever right it's recorded in the Present tense, it says, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which has led some people to conclude, well, when he says thou art, that means right then and there in heaven, this was a reality. Christ was told that in heaven when David recorded it, it's written in the present tense. Is this really so? And why would David record it in this way? Let's see what the scripture says. Back to Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11. It gives us another insight again. And we're just trying to place the timing here. It says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? What's Paul making? What what point is Paul making here? He's saying the Levitical priesthood could not accomplish something. It could not accomplish perfection. There was still a need for another priest to arise. In other words, in the future, future from Levi, future from the Levitical priesthood, not just the man Levi, but future from the Levitical priesthood, which can accomplish these things. And he would actually be like a better kind of priest. He would be like the Melchizedek priesthoods. And so, so long as the law of the Levitical priesthood and the existence and the operation of the Levitical priesthood was in place, it meant that the better one was not yet come or not yet here. The way Paul expresses it in the the chapter, uh, a couple of chapters after chapter 10 and verse one, Hebrews, he says, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The law had a shadow of good things to come. What was one of those good things that were to come? The fulfillment of the oath that God revealed to David. That was something better that was to come. In other words, the better priesthood, better than the Levitical priesthood the priesthood of Christ. Of course, David was living at the time when the Levitical priesthood was still functional and operational. There was an earthly temple, sacrifices, and there was an earthly high priest at the time. And this is how the Apostle Paul records it. Now, so long as the Levitical priesthood was in place, could the better priesthood come? The answer is no, as we are seeing so far. Why is this important? Because it helps us, actually protects us, and it helps us understand and appreciate what it means to have Christ as our high priest. There's an idea that exists. Well, let's, let's put this on our diagram before we go on. So during David's time, the oath was not yet fulfilled. It was still to come. It was one of the better things to come. I've heard this idea, and like I said, it's important to understand what the Bible says. Then we can see how misunderstandings can lead to other ideas. That The idea being that while Aaron was a priest on earth, Christ's priesthood was operational and functional in heaven at the same time. As a matter of fact, the Aaronic priesthood served as a channel to connect people at that time with the original priesthood of Christ that was operational functioning at the same time. You might have heard that. If not, you will. If you have, then you know what I'm talking about. Is this true or not? So far as what we're seeing, it cannot be. Because the Bible actually tells us that the law had the shadow of good things to come. Not good things that were then present. Actually says the law did not have the very image of the things, but it was only a type it was only pointing forward to. In other words, we don't have the two priesthoods running simultaneously at the same time. Now someone might say, well we all know that. Well if we do then that's good. But not everybody knows that. And these misunderstandings, while they might seem innocent, actually can lead to some dangerous conclusions. Because after all, the ministry of Christ in the sanctuary is a foundational doctrine. You can expect the enemy to have some kind of a deception or a deviation or even a slight misunderstanding, and that will have its ramifications. Here's an illustration of what I'm talking about as far as Uh, what, what we're saying, that we have these two priesthoods operating, and the idea generally exists that Christ's heavenly priesthood, or the Melchizedek priesthood, actually existed from the fall of man all the way to the second coming, and it actually served as a source for the Aaronic priesthood, which was a channel, and so through the Aaronic priesthood, people could come through this channel and connect with the source priesthood, the priesthood of Christ. Uh, I think we found so far that Christ's priesthood was not in the past and it was not during David's time. It was still something that was pointed forward to by the law. It was a better thing that was still to come. Now, this false view actually leads to false conclusions. Many times, many people don't connect the two. When you have a false view, If you logically follow some things through, you are forced to adopt certain conclusions. I'll give you an example. If you believe in the Trinity, you believe in three co-equal, co-eternal beings. Each of them is God. That's a false view. That will lead to a false conclusion that not everybody necessarily logically gets to, but some people do. The false conclusion is this. If all three are God, then all three must be worshiped equally. So it's okay to worship the? Holy Spirit as someone different to the Father and the Son. Now I've talked to Trinitarians who will say, but I don't worship the Holy Spirit. That's okay, but that's a logical conclusion required by that view. If he is God, why don't you worship him? You with me? So uh, a false view is always going to lead to a false conclusion. It doesn't mean everybody ends up at that false conclusion. But that's uh, sometimes when you look at the conclusion, it helps people see, oh, well, that's why this is a false view. And so it's important to connect the two. So how does this, how's this idea arrived at? You know, uh, someone might say, well, this is really strange. How has it arrived at? Here's an illustration of how it's arrived at. It's a misunderstanding of the word that we read in Hebrews. It's a, the misunderstood word is the word shadow. And the idea being this, you know, the tree has a shadow, right? Can the shadow exist without the tree? The answer of course is no. So therefore, if the law had a shadow, therefore, the real things that they were a shadow of were in existence at the same time. Therefore, Christ's priesthood was functioning at the same time as the priesthood on earth. Does that sound reasonable? To a certain degree, but there's an inherent problem. There's a jump that happened there. I'm not sure if you noticed it. The tree has what kind of a shadow? A literal shadow. The shadow that Paul talks about as the law having a shadow, is that a literal shadow? No, No, that's a metaphor, correct? It's not a literal shadow, it's a metaphor that points forward to something that will come. So making the metaphor literal and and applying literal rules to it can lead to false views that eventually pave the way to false conclusions. And so it's important to recognize that the service of the priest whether he was Melchizedek or Aaron was a shadow, not a shadow of a reality that existed at the same time, but a shadow of a better thing that would come in the future. It's kind of like, you know, when I was going to get married before our wedding day, we right. had a rehearsal. Maybe most of you got married had that, right? We all line up and the pastor is there. And this is where the bridesmaids will stand and the groomsmen and so on. And we go through the motions, a rehearsal. Now that's uh, what we refer to, uh, we use the word rehearsal. The biblical word for the similar concept is shadow. That's what it's talking about. So if you look at that, it's a, it's a dim shadow even, metaphorically, of the next day. Obviously, my wife on the wedding day uh, was dressed in a much better dress than in the rehearsal. Okay, and, and we we're all in casual clothes and so on. So the services of the earthly priesthood were a rehearsal of something better to come. To give humanity a vivid illustration of this better thing that one day would be in place. Called the priesthood of Christ. After the order of Melchizedek. So if it's future, how much future? Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying... Behold, the man whose name is the branch and he shall grow up out of his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne and he shall be a priest upon his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. I think we've all quoted this passage, particularly the last part. How many times have you you said, look, council of, of peace between them both. How many is both? Two. Okay. We all know that verse. But this verse is, in context, it's a messianic prophecy, right? It's telling us of the time when Christ would come as the branch, as a man. And it's written clearly with what kind of tense? Future tense. Seven times the word shall is mentioned in this verse. Christ would do all these things. All these things are linked with his coming as Savior. One of them is, he shall be a priest. So even up till till the time of Zechariah, when he was recording, up till that time we know Christ had not yet become a priest. Was the Levitical priesthood still functioning in Zechariah's days? Yes, it was. The law had a shadow of good things to come. Here are they listed. And interestingly enough, too, Zechariah links that with a number of things. But one of them is where Christ would sit on the throne—that's what the oath had said. Sit down on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So, if we put that in our illustration here, Zechariah living much closer to the cross, and from the time of Zechariah, Christ was still to be a priest. He shall be a priest. Interestingly enough, that council of peace is also in the future. Yeah. Yeah. We always use it in the past, right? says the council of peace, it doesn't say was between them both. It says shall be between them both. The council of peace, brothers and sisters, is between the father and between his son as a man. The council of peace is about salvation. It's about God and man being reconciled. God and man were reconciled when? When Christ took on humanity and delivered us. And in our nature, God and man were reconciled and the council of peace Was between them both. Was because now it's past for us. But from Zechariah's point, it was to come. It was still dependent on the coming of Christ as a man. Now, uh, that's the direct context. So someone can pull you up on that and say, hold on, this is in the future. How come you're applying it in the past? But uh, this is how you can explain it. If the council of peace is between the Father and the Son, after the accomplishment of the plan of salvation, that's the fulfillment of that council of peace. It's the same two who had planned it in the beginning. But that passage is not dealing with the plan in the beginning. It's dealing with the fulfillment, but that gives us an insight as to who talked about it in the beginning. You with me? It's important to stick to the context and be true to the context. That's just a side point. But in Hebrews it spells it out for us clearly about this change of priesthoods that would happen. Hebrews 7.12 For the priesthood being changed there there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Which priesthood changed? The Levitical or Aaronic priesthood, right? It changed and the better thing would come. And that would also include a change also of the law. It changed from the priesthood of Aaron to the priesthood of Christ. Not Melchizedek, right? But to the one like Melchizedek's priesthood. Because the Melchizedek priesthood is a superior one to the Aaronic priesthood. And Paul gives the illustration in that passage that when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, Levi was actually in the loins of Abraham. And Levi, being the head and the representative of that priesthood, which was still to come, he paid tithes to Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And Paul says, without controversy, the lesser is Blessed by the greater. Showing that between Aaron and Melchizedek, Melchizedek had a superior priesthood. Christ's priesthood is like the superior one. That's his point in that passage. He is like the better priesthood that surpasses the Levitical and it actually surpasses the Melchizedek priesthood as well. And this is what we're going to see. So the two priesthoods could not have existed at the same time. When we talk about a change of priesthood, We actually talk about something finishing and something else starting. If the two priesthoods existed at the same time, then Paul's words are meaningless. You know, we're going to have a baptism this afternoon. Uh, People will have to change their clothes, right? For the baptism. So they will take something off and they will put something else on. Okay, we all know that. The Bible talks about a change of priesthood. Something was going to stop and then something else was going to come. And so that's why we're saying they could not have coexisted at the same time. There was going to be a very drastic shift from the earthly to the heavenly. Because if you think about it, if the heavenly priesthood of Christ was in place and functioning from the beginning, why institute earthly priesthoods that were inferior? Right? For what purpose? If you have the better thing already, why give a less than better thing? But if the less than better thing was to serve as a shadow, a metaphorical shadow, to tell you about the good thing that one day will come, it helps people learn and understand. And then when that better thing would come, the earthly would cease. And that's exactly what happened. Now we saw earlier that the Christ becoming a priest was linked with him sitting on the right hand of God. This is linked with, his, uh, with this oath that God gave him that he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. When did Christ sit on the right hand of God? Someone might say, well, he always sat there. He was the son of God. That's a good point. What, what is it referring to when it talks about Christ sitting on the right hand of God? Obviously, if you always sat there on the right hand of God, then what is God telling him? Sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, when he tells him, sit on my right hand, there are enemies that exist, Right? When do enemies exist? In a perfect universe where there's no sin? No. This is, in other words, the sitting on the right hand of God is in the context of the problem of sin and in solving the problem of sin. In other words, it's in the context of Christ as the Savior. And in the context of Christ as the Savior, he has enemies. There are those who accept him and there are those who reject him. And so God is telling him, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this is why we're saying it's in the context... Of salvation. Here's what Hebrews tells us, the beginning of that chapter, of that book, Hebrews 1 3. Who being the brightness of His glory, speaking of Christ as the brightness of God's glory, and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. Christ sat down on the, mag- on the right hand of God after purging our sins. And this is, of course, it only happened at the cross. And so if we put it in our diagram, we find that when Christ sits on the right hand of God, that's when the oath is fulfilled. And that's when the priesthood of Christ actually commences after he purged our sins. He sat down on the right hand of God, becoming our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, who lived at this time here, Melchizedek, we found, was a man. He was a human being. The book of Hebrews makes it clear that in order for you to be a priest for human beings, you must be a man, a human being. It makes sense because how can you minister to humans who have a sin problem if you don't understand or you don't have the same thing? Not a sin problem, but an understanding by experience. Because one of the functions of a priest is also to mediate. That's why to accomplish the plan of salvation, Christ, who was the divine son of God, actually had to become the human son of man. And uh, like we said, the order of Melchizedek is not a class of priests with different people occupying that post. Otherwise, the type would not fit. The, the unique thing that Paul is using about the order of Melchizedek is that it had only one priest. No lineage and no succession. No previous and no after. Only one. And he's saying, you know what? That really illustrates the priesthood of Christ who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There was no priest before him and there was no priest after him. Melchizedek was a king and king. Thank you, of course. The other, the other aspect, of course, is that Melchizedek, thank you, was a priest as well as being a king. There are a number of similarities there. And uh, uh, that's not the. these are not the only similarities, but uh, let's look at some of them since we're on that topic. Uh, Melchizedek was a human being, so was Christ. Melchizedek was made a priest by an oath, so was Christ. Without descent and without uh, a successor. So it's also an unchangeable priesthood. Now, the name Melchizedek means what? King of Righteousness. righteousness or peace. His name was a type. Christ is not a Melchizedek priest in the same order. He is Melchizedek in the sense that he is the fulfillment, being the true king of righteousness and king of peace, then the title is representative of what he fulfills, but it doesn't mean that they both belong in the one and same order, and this is why uh, we're saying it's impossible for, uh, you know, when we looked at the diagram earlier, we we'll look at it again briefly as well, uh, if Christ's priesthood is called the Melchizedek priesthood in heaven, and there was a Melchizedek priesthood on earth, that doesn't really work, the Melchizedek priesthood has only one, it was the man Melchizedek on earth, Christ is like that, he's not the same. So these are some of the similarities. What are some of the differences? You know, there were some shortcomings to the Melchizedek priesthood. Was it an earthly priesthood or a heavenly priesthood? you sure about that? It operated on earth. What kind of sacrifices would Melchizedek offer? Animal sacrifices, right? The type. That's exactly right. Could these things make perfect? No. So this is why Christ's uh, Christ priesthood is not the same. There were shortcomings. He is like it in the similarities. He is unlike it in that his is superior and so much better. Which temple did Melchizedek operate in? Which one? What earthly temple? <laughs> there was no earthly temple, brother and sister. The earthly temple was built... When God gave the instruction to Moses. Melchizedek didn't have any temple that he operated in whatsoever, whether earthly, let alone heavenly. It was nothing. Sorry, it was a bit of a trick question, but I want to make sure you're awake. Melchizedek did not have a temple to operate in. Of course, Christ has a superior thing to even the Levitical priesthood. He has the heavenly temple that he operates in. And this is what the scripture points out, or points us to, Hebrews 8.1. Now the things which we have spoken, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We have a heavenly priesthood. We have a heavenly priest who operates in a much better and more complete and more perfect way than any earthly priesthood, including the Melchizedek priesthood. Which was superior to the Levitical priesthood. A heavenly temple, and how many animal sacrifices are offered there? None. Because we have the one all-encompassing sacrifice of Christ. Now, in order for Christ to become our priest, he had to actually qualify for that position and to fill that capacity. How did Christ accomplish that? Hebrews 8:6 tells us, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also He is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Christ's ministry in heaven had to be obtained. In other words, it had to be earned. Something had to happen in order for him to obtain it. It wasn't always there. It wasn't something that was automatic. Because Paul says here in Hebrews, now he has obtained. In other words, he's writing after the fact. He's writing after Christ obtained this better ministry, more excellent ministry, and that's what qualifies him to have this better covenant, of which he is the mediator and the priest. How did Christ obtain this more excellent ministry? We're given an insight a few verses earlier in the chapter. Hebrews 8 3 says, For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to Offer. Christ had to have something to offer. This would be what he would obtain to give him the right to ha- become a priest. When did Christ have something to offer? He said, when he came, Yes, all good answers that I'm hearing m- being mumbled. He came, he said, uh, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And on the cross, after he had taken on the vital component Of humanity, after becoming one of us, not just taking it on, He became one of us. And as one of us, He obtained this more excellent right to become our priest. And this is what He has to offer. I think it goes without saying, but I'll mention it. Christ did not have anything to offer before He came as a man. As far as helping us to defeat sin and Satan by experience. You with me? What he has to offer has to do with helping us overcome sin. Before Christ came as a man, had he defeated sin and Satan yet? No. And he had to defeat sin and Satan as a man. So I'm saying he did not have anything to offer in the capacity of a priest. That's why his priesthood was still on hold it was still to come it was still future it was not there yet but of course god offered power and his grace to people back then there's there's no question about that so yeah is that really quick because i don't want to interrupt the there's a question how could he he offer sacrifices without a temple which your picture confuses you may want to take a trip back to abel or to Job. okay thank you offering sacrifices without a temple good point because we said melchizedek did not have an earthly temple it would he would have done it just like all the patriarchs would have done it uh, constructing a, a simple altar of stone, unhewn stone, and offering the sacrifices there. This is how it was first started. And then God later on incorporated the temple system when he gave that instruction to, uh, to Moses. Thank you. That's a good point to clarify. I appreciate that. Here it is in detail without much comment really needed. Paul spells it out in Hebrews 5. He goes through the sequence and it's pretty self-explanatory from verse 5. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Now I want to pause here for a minute, because I want to clarify this. Some people have confused and thought, Christ became a priest when he was begotten as the son. Because it says, you are my son, this day have I begotten thee. That's not what it's saying. It's saying he glorified the one who told him, you are my son. Who's that? His father. Showing that the authority for his priesthood is the same one that told him, you are my son. It's not the timing. I just want to clarify that because I, that can be confusing for some. Verse 6, as he saith also, in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who said that? God. The father. So the source of the authority for his priesthood is none other than the same one who said, you are my son. oh was his father. That's the highest source of authority. Going on, verse 7, who Paul is telling us here, when this oath was fulfilled, it's when Christ obtained the right to become our high priest by going through our experience, by learning obedience by the things that he suffered. And that's when God called him and said, come sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You are now a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ had to learn obedience by the things that he suffered. That's his experience as a man. In conquering sin and Satan as a man that qualifies him to be our high priest and to minister to us his very own life. This is, the, this is the key point of the priesthood of Christ. What does Christ minister? He ministers to us this precious experience that he gained, which is all contained in his life. That's the ministry of Christ as our high priest. That's why the Bible calls that the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what our high priest ministers. It's the life in which he obtained all these precious experiences. That's why the doctrine of the Trinity utterly decimates the ministry of Christ. It says someone else comes. Then what is Christ's ministry? It becomes only a theory. And the doctrine or the truth of the sanctuary message becomes reduced to arguments over buildings in heaven. The the sanctuary truth. The key component of the sanctuary truth is the ministry of Christ as our high priest, and what he ministers is his life. That's what he obtained in order to become our high priest. He went through a very hard time. That's a big understatement. He went through a very hard time to be that to become that. Through suffering, he learned obedience, and he was made perfect as a man Amen. to become our glorious high priest, a perfected. Humanity, with a perfect track record of victory over sin. Amen. I don't think I need to ask you to show your hands if you would like that. <laughs> we don't have that. But one of our race has it. Amen. One of us has it. Amen. A human being like us is the one who defeated Satan. And he stands now in the presence of God He's still a human being. He hasn't ceased to be a human being. And he ministers to us all these precious benefits that he went through such trial to obtain for us. Crying blood. And so when, or sweating blood, I'm sorry. Uh, when was the last time you sweat blood in your battle with sin and Satan? Huh? Crying, uh, sorry, praying through the whole night. When was the last time you prayed all night? From sundown till sun up. Christ did that for us, brothers and sisters. He knew we couldn't do it. He told his disciples, look, the spirit is willing, but what? Flesh is weak. But he came in our flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he obtained all that for us. That's the ministry of this high priest. This is Christ's better and more glorious and perfect priesthood. And this is why when we understand that, I think it stands... The contrast stands out more as to why misunderstanding that can lead to differing ideas. You see, sometimes some people say, well, you know, I believe Christ was always a priest and with good motive because they want to honor Christ, perhaps kind of like the Trinitarian who says, no, Christ was not really begotten. He was always there. Many times the motive for that is it would be dishonoring Christ to believe that at one point he came from the Father. We have to give him the exact same length of duration as the Father. Co-eternal, so he always was there. A good motive, but a disastrous conclusion. You deny the sonship of Christ, thinking you are honoring Christ. In the same way, there's some good motive. Say, you know, the priesthood of Christ is so magnificent, so important. It must have always been there, because it's hard to picture it not being there. But what that does, it actually destroys the very qualification that Christ went through. In other words, his experience as a man becomes all of a sudden meaningless or irrelevant because what more could he give him if he already was that priest with the biblical view it actually focuses us on what christ did as a man that's a correct understanding of the priesthood of christ now we looked we looked at that view like we said this is an illustration of it Uh, i want to touch on some brief examples of some of these false conclusions you might be aware of them you might even believe them, but I'm talking about the conclusions, not you, okay? I don't necessarily know, know what you believe. But we just want to examine things together as brothers and sisters, you know? What, what does it mean when we believe the priesthood of Christ to be so? Because we also have to be mindful of the dangers that exist, particularly in the last days. Uh, seeing that the humanity of Christ is so important. When you begin with the view that Christ was always a priest, you have to do some juggling to try and make some things fit. For example, when God told Adam and Eve of that promise, the first promise of salvation, in your seed, sorry, uh, from the seed of the woman, uh, someone will come to crush the serpent's head. And uh, he will uh, crush his heel. Who was he talking about? He was talking about Christ. The seed of the woman means... The offspring of the woman, right? A human being was come who was to come was to take on Satan. This is actually pointing forward to what would qualify Christ to become our priest. It's contained in that promise. But sometimes this is misunderstood because if Christ was a priest already and his humanity was required, I actually have heard it said that from the time that promise was given, Christ was in the womb of humanity waiting to be born when he was born as a man. And in so doing, he had some experience of humanity and that qualified him to be a priest at the same time. You know what that is? That's mysticism. This is spiritualism. Spiritualizing things and creating ideas that are not reflected in the particular passage. i actually heard it said, so I'm not saying something that Is too far out there. You might have heard it too. This is an example of a verse that's used to support this idea. Isaiah 63, 9. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. And the idea being, see, when God is afflicted, God was learning by experience what it's like to be tempted as a man. Is this what this verse is saying? It's not what the verse is saying. It says, God was grieved by the suffering of his people. But it doesn't mean that he experienced temptation. The Bible actually says it's impossible for God to be tempted. And even Christ, in order to experience what temptation is like, had to be a a real man, not in a spiritualistic way. He came and was born just like we are. And so, again, the view... Forces the reading of the text. You can start looking for things that you want to support the idea if you set out with the wrong idea. And this is why we need to examine some of these things. There's no question that sin grieves the heart of God. Sin troubles the heart of God. The afflictions of his people afflict God. But this is not what qualified Christ to become our priest. He had to go through our experience. It wasn't suffering that gave him the qualification. It was victory over sin. He obtained that victory over sin as one of us. Not by proxy, not in some spiritualistic sense. He came as a real man and he met real temptation and he defeated real sin. And he will remain as a man forever. That's something for us to contemplate in eternity. What it means for Christ to continue as a man forever. This is how the spirit of prophecy puts it. Zara 744. Jesus was earning, this is in the chapter dealing with the cross and his death, death on the cross. Jesus was earning the right to become the advocate of men in the Father's presence. And a few pages later, page seven, 57, it says, the great sacrifice has been made. The way into the holiest is laid open and you in living ways prepared for all. No longer need sinful, sorrowing humanity await the coming of the high priest. Mm-hmm. Henceforth, the Savior was to officiate <laughs> as priest and advocate in the heaven of heavens. Hallelujah. From henceforth. That means from now on. We were all waiting for the high priest to come. Not because he was then. That means for the fulfillment of the oath of when he would become a high priest. He earned that on the cross. And this is why his ministration is unanswerable by the charges of Satan. You realize that? if we realize the power of what it means to have Christ as a high priest, too often it's simply a doctrine for us. It's just a truth we believe. What does it mean really to have Christ as our high priest? It means he ministers in this sanctuary as well, because we are the temple of God. Isn't that right? And when he ministers in this sanctuary, what he ministers is the very same thing. It is his life. That's why the doctrine of the Trinity destroys that. It says you have a different minister in this temple. You might have Christ as the high priest in heaven, okay. But in this temple, there's someone else. That destroys that truth. Christ can only be the high priest. He's the only one who earned that right. Another idea that exists is, if Christ ministers life, which is symbolized in the scriptures by the blood, and this is a a most often abused verse, people say, well, you know what? Christ was actually slain from the foundation of the world. You familiar with that verse in Revelation? And the idea being that somehow there is something real to that symbol, something mystically real, that something was shed from the foundation of the world. In other words, Christ had blood shed, and that's what qualifies him to be the priest from the beginning. This is further mysticism. I assure you, there was no blood shed from the foundation of the world. That's a prophecy. Peter says he was foreordained or foreknown. It's something that is to come. I think we all know Christ did not have any blood to shed from the foundation of the world. He only became human when he came 2,000 years ago. And that's when he became the lamb slain. He was slain once, not repeatedly. You see, in in speaking uh, about this with someone, I once said, well, you know, what are you saying? So all these people in the Old Testament, all they had was just the promise of God? I said, yes. And the promise of God was said in a way as if it's not good enough. You know, they just had the promise. They didn't have the fulfillment. That's right. That's what the scripture says. It says all these people died in faith, having not received the promise. In other words, they did not see the fulfillment come about. But brothers and sisters, don't underestimate the promise of God. That's God who gave this promise. Let me illustrate to you how strong it is. Three people went to heaven on the strength of that promise. You think that's not good enough? The strength of that promise was how Enoch, Moses, and Elijah actually went to heaven before the fulfillment of the promise. So don't underestimate God's promise. It's it's not like they just had the promise. They had God's promise. And it's the same way that Abraham was made Righteous. You remember that? He believed God's promise and he was made righteous. And the same is said for us as well. While Abraham believed the promise of what Christ would accomplish, we believe in what Christ has accomplished. The same thing or the similarity is in we both believe. But the difference for us is now it is a reality that has transpired, it is faith. That gives us access to that and so it's not surprising that as we come to the last days we find the priesthood of Christ confused under attack distorted because it gives rise to other distortions and other ideas how you read the Bible is predetermined by what conclusions you have when you come to it and we all have conclusions in our head We've all heard things. And sometimes it colors the way we read the scriptures. And so we think, well, if this was the case, we look for reasons to justify our belief. And this is the most common way to twist scriptures. Many times with a good motive, because obviously what you believe you're defending, you think is the truth. And this is what needs to be examined. This is why we need to examine carefully the foundation of our faith. The ministry of Christ is a key component of that. The everlasting gospel is what we're talking about, the gospel of salvation. The everlasting gospel has two very clear parts the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. God did not have to have Christ die in order to take Enoch to heaven, did he? The strength of the promise was good enough. So everything does not have to fulfill before God can do things. God can do it on credit. We do that as humans, right? You go buy an item and you don't pay a cent for it. And you go and you use it like it's your own, right? Who paid for it? The bank. And you make a promise. All you've done is you make a promise that you will one day pay. And you better pay or you're gonna pay more, you know, with interest or you might end up losing it. And that has happened sadly to people on, on a bigger scale with homes and so on and so forth. When we talk about the everlasting gospel or the everlasting covenant, we talk also about the new covenant and a a very closely associated idea. When we talk about the new covenant, this has been some of the subjects that have been covered. There are certain blessings in the new covenant that resulted from the sacrifice of Christ. Important blessings that resulted from the sacrifice of Christ. If we misunderstand the priesthood of Christ, we begin to misunderstand these blessings. I've heard it said that every blessing of the new covenant was always available for humanity at all time. Is this true or not? The most important blessing of the new covenant is salvation. Salvation was accomplished at one point in history. When was that? When Christ said it is finished and three days later rose from the grave victorious. That's when salvation came. Up till that time it was promised. Here are a few examples of what I'm talking about. All the blessings of the new covenant. Do they always exist in time? The blood of the Lamb. Does that exist before the cross? Mm -hmm. Only by promise. Uh, Let me explain that. The blood of the Lamb, I'm referring to the type. I'm, I'm referring to the blood of Christ. The life of Christ as a man. That's what we're talking about. That was one of the promises, one of the blessings that would come in the new Covenant. What about the comforter? Was the comforter there before Christ came to earth? The answer is no. Even while he was on earth, it he wasn't here yet. He told his disciples, I need to go. If I don't go, he will not come. So am I saying the spirit of God was not there? No. What is the comforter? The comforter is what Christ obtained in his experience as a man. It's the spirit of God plus all the experience of humanity being perfected through Christ going through suffering and being perfected. That's what the comforter is. That's why Satan is keen to distort that. What about the way into the holiest? Hebrews tells us it was not yet made manifest while the first, first tabernacle was still standing. But it's only made manifest after that was changed and taken out of the way. The veil was ripped in a very visible way. And of course, the better priesthood that we're talking about. That is one of the blessings of the new Covenant. One of the exclusive blessings of this new covenant. We have now this better priesthood. The oath is finally fulfilled. Interestingly enough, and surprisingly enough, I guess, I have noticed that, you know, I'm preaching this in different places in different times. Uh, Not everybody agrees with with what's being said from the front. That's not surprising. After a while, you kind of get used to that. But I noticed a certain pattern. In sharing this particular point about the priesthood of Christ, I find that, some people would come and object. And the common denominator between these brethren, I didn't realize that before. Interestingly enough, you know what it was? Was that they were brethren who believed that the feast should be kept. And it really made me puzzled. And I'm not saying this to pick in anyone. It's just an observation I have found. And I thought, why why is that? That somehow, if the priesthood of Christ is rightly understood, it has an impact on that. And the reasoning I have learned is simply this, that if the feasts or any other aspect, and we're using that as an illustration, this is not the point of the study. If the feasts were good enough then and there, in the Aaronic priesthood, and through the feasts they actually served as a channel to give them access to the heavenly priesthood of Christ, then logically the same should apply now. That's the reasoning behind that. So I thought that's a very interesting observation. It all depends on, what views we start with from the beginning. And so, that's why I said that system was given not as, a, not as a channel, but as a type, as a prophecy, containing shadows of good things to come. This is why a correct understanding actually helps us avoid some of these different conclusions. Some of them that are not entirely according to the teaching of the new covenant. I want to close with this verse and it's an encouragement, and it's an appeal for you and for me, because I want what we talk about needs to be practical. It's not just theories. It's not just we understand it in our head. Here's how Paul uh, puts it in Hebrews chapter four, verses fourteen to sixteen. He says, "Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession." For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What gives us the right to come boldly? It's because he's one of us, he's a human. We can come with confidence knowing. When we come and ask, he knows exactly what we're talking about. He doesn't know it because he's God and he knows everything. No, he knows it because he experienced it. It's not a knowledge he has. It's an experience that he obtained. You know, when you go through a hard experience in your life, you go through a, a difficulty or a trial and you try and share with your friends and those who try and sympathize with you or, or empathize with you rather and they haven't gone through it, you know, they just don't understand. Right? And big stuff, say you lose a loved one, whether it be a partner or or a child or the the big stuff. I'm not talking about little things, things that are really uh, distressing that we go through. Some people just don't understand what we go through. But when you meet someone who actually has a similar experience, there is immediately a certain affinity, a certain bond, because they can say, you know what, I know what that's like. And sometimes they don't have to say much. You know, They could even just hug you. And there is this bond. There is this affinity. Because there is a shared experience. There is a shared pain. There is a shared suffering. This is what gives us boldness to come before the presence of God. Because we have a high priest who is tempted in all points. You're going through a hard time right now in your Christian experience. You're going through trial. There is a high priest who knows exactly what that's like. He has gone through that. And he overcame that. Do we come to the presence of God boldly, brothers and sisters? This is what the sanctuary truth is about. It's to, when we understand the priesthood of Christ properly, it's to give us boldness, and we come with a certain understanding and a certain faith, and grasp a hold of his ministry and say, Lord, I will not go until you bless me. Because you know exactly what I'm going through. Brothers and sisters, this is what the ministry of Christ is all about. He knows what we go through. He knows the trials you're facing right now in your experience today. If this is you today going through something like that, I want to point you to the high priest. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's why he is a merciful and faithful high priest. And he can help you. And he can provide for you the succor and the help and the comfort that you need to supernaturally overcome that trial, which Satan makes a hundredfold worse. Because we know that. We go through a trial and then Satan comes and piles up on top of our head and makes it a hundredfold worse. Romans tells us, who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, that is risen. Yea, rather, that is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. That's what it means to have Christ as our high priest. I appeal to you and I challenge you. Take that to heart and come boldly before the throne of grace. Are you looking to take your Bible study to the next level? Do you want to learn how to apply the Word of God in your daily life and share it more effectively with others? My Bible Academy is your online Bible school, offering a free, comprehensive, and dynamic program designed to deepen your understanding and engagement with the Bible. Take the next step in your spiritual growth and enroll to start a course at My Bible Academy today. The courses are designed to equip you with the tools and knowledge you need to share your faith with others. Visit natamansur.com to enroll and start your learning journey today. That's nadermansoor.com. See you there.